You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The military has trained most of our mass murderers, including Charles Whitman, the Texas Tower shooter who killed 14 and wounded 31 in 1966, the year I was born. He invented the school shooting, really, though he also murdered his mother and wife first, not limiting himself to school. The military trains all its troops to kill without feeling anything, and so we should fear every American who has served in the military. But they aren't the only ones we have to fear, unfortunately. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold of Columbine were high school killers bred from a gun culture that comes at least partly from hunting. My own earliest memories are of guns and hunting. This was Ketchikan, Alaska in 1970, timber wolves slung across the bow of my father's boat, trapped and shot. Antlers I found in the rainforest behind our house, moose and mountain goat and dolls rams that my father felt were too small to keep. Running through that rainforest at four years old, I imagined I was being chased by bear or wolf, sometimes falling through the false second floor of branches and ferns and decay, disappearing completely, climbing back out in panic, always holding a toy gun or even just a piece of wood shaped like a gun. At six or seven in Northern California, my father finally gave me a Sheridan Blue Streak pellet rifle, powerful enough to kill squirrels if I hit them behind the shoulder. The giving of the gun was a ritual, my father's pride and pleasure as he showed me how to pump the gun, how to pull back the bolt. He even read a poem from Sturm, Ruger and Company about a father and son, used it to teach me safety, never point a gun at anyone, always assume a gun is loaded, but never leave a gun loaded, always keep the barrel pointed down. This is very soon after he and my mother had divorced, and we had only the weekends now. Roaming his 90-acre ranch near Lakeport, California, one of those weekends, I didn't realize the rifle was pumped and loaded, and it fired as I walked. Luckily, the barrel was pointed at the ground, but my father turned around, the disappointment clear on his face, and my shame was nearly unbearable. David Van is the author of the nonfiction work A Mile Down, the true story of a disastrous career at sea. He is the author of the short story collection A Legend of a Suicide. His first novel is Caribou Island. His newest book is Last Day on Earth, a portrait of the NIU school shooter, Steve Kazmierczyk. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. David, this is a powerful, intense, and very disturbing book. It's an all-true, all-American horror story. What drew you to this material and, and made you decide to go after this story when so many others had failed? Well, I originally originally wanted to write a story about how much access kids have to guns in suburban America. When my father killed himself with a pistol when I was 13 years old, my family thought it'd be a great idea to give me all of his guns afterward. So I had a 20-gauge shotgun, a 12-gauge shotgun, a 30-30 rifle, and a 300 Magnum rifle uh, with a scope, a, a rifle meant for bears. So I was 13 years old, so of course I used those guns. I, I snuck around our suburban neighborhood in Santa Rosa, California, and I shot out street lamps from a couple hundred yards away, and I actually aimed at people through their living room windows with the shell in the chamber and the safety off. I came very close, to potentially, to hurting someone. And so I wanted to write about how much access kids have to guns, like whether this was a strange experience I had or, or is actually fairly common. And my editor at Esquire had just heard about this shooting, Valentine's Day 2008, Northern Illinois University, and he said, um, you're just like this guy. Uh, he was a straight-A student, Dean's Award winner, 
uh, apparently had some kind of strange double life going on, uh, you should write about him. Uh, so it was nice of my editor to think of me uh, when he read about the mass murder. <laughs> uh, and so I, I went to go see if I could find out anything about the story. And he had no faith that I would get the story. I'd never done any kind of investigative journalism, so I had no contract. He just sent me, and we just would see if I could do anything. And I got lucky. I was a professor and a memoirist, not a journalist. And so all of the professors and friends of the shooter who wouldn't talk to other media would let me hang out with them. I went to dinner with them and classes and a conference. I went bowling and and um, on their, their school field trips, like to a correction center, for instance. And and uh, I spent a couple of weeks with them and was able to find out that they didn't know anything. Not only would they not talk to media, but they also actually didn't know anything. <laughs> this guy had reinvented himself over the last five years. And so the Steve they knew didn't match the guy who walked out and did the shooting on, on stage in a school auditorium. So I went back to his junior high and high school friends. And there, uh, during those years, uh, junior high and high school, and then afterward in the mental health system, he had a life really perfectly shaped for mass murder. He had every warning sign you could possibly have. And I did all those interviews, and then I also read the books he was reading and watched the movies he was watching, and I shared all those with law enforcement, and in return, law enforcement gave me access to the 1,500 pages of the police files that they hadn't shared with anyone else, with the New York Times, CNN, uh, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, all those. And they're completely unedited. I got to see everything. I got to see every prostitute he was with and her real name and address and all of his emails and his mental health history, everything a therapist ever wrote about him you know, his emails to his sister, all the interviews that law enforcement had done with everyone. Uh, so I had really an incredible access to information. Um, and, and then that's why the story became more than just an article for Esquire. It became a book. Now, this isn't a book just about Steve. It's also about you. And mm -hmm. one of the things I think that makes this book so powerful and scary is your own portrait of yourself. And, and I'd like you to talk about that process because as you just described it, you were immersed in the life and the mind of a mass murderer. When you first went to meet this, find out about this guy, you just thought you might be writing an article about suicide bereavement. Right. I, I thought that I believed the story at first that he was just a, a grad student who snapped someone who's essentially innocent in some way or, or didn't have a life shaped for this kind of thing, and just something went wrong. He just kind of snapped, because that's what the story was at the time. And so I wasn't quite prepared for what the story would end up becoming. And I wasn't quite prepared for how much I would feel implicated in it and how much I would feel that American culture generally was implicated. One, one reason that I ended up including my own story in the book is that I didn't want to make him a monster. I didn't want to push him away. I want us to keep him as close as possible and to think about how his life is similar to the shapes of our lives and to think about how many other Americans have a lot of these same risk factors that he had that would lead to the shooting. Let's ratchet back to his early life. He, even when he was a young, young man, he had the classic signs of, of being a murderer, a mass murderer, a serial killer. He, mm -hmm. he abused animals, and there were scenes in there that I could just, I couldn't even hardly read. Mm -hmm. And I want you to just talk about, um, you had this 1,500 pages of 
police stuff, all the interviews he'd done, that's like must have been about somewhere over north of 2,000 pages of material. Mm-hmm. You've got a, this a snappy, very tense, very intense book that's less than 170 pages long. That kind of coalescing process, <laughs> talk about how that coalesced and how you focus down to that very first time that we meet when we meet Steve. Well, I wanted to write about him almost as if he was a character in fiction, where it would be in scenes, and it would be very close and fast, and there'd be only the important moments, just as you'd have in a novel, the important moments that seemed like turning points, where something was revealed about who he was, and something happened that shaped who he would become and and made that final event possible. So in the end, I felt that there were maybe half a dozen aspects of his life, narratives of his life, that led toward making that final moment possible. And the book really is focusing on those and, and cuts out most of the kind of dross of a life, like most of the, the stuff that's inconsequential. You know, most of the stuff we go through on a daily basis does not, in fact, end up shaping us in some fundamental way. So it was a, it was a process of selection. Now, uh, it, I think you did a really fabulous job because it's very intense. And Thank you. And you, you create a really vivid cast, a great cast of very vivid characters. And from early on, what strikes me is that you think that, you mentioned that, it's something, it has a lot to do with his class and the education of his parents and how much money they made because his parents were not stupid. They knew they had a problem child right. on their hands and they asked for help. Right. His parents asked the school for help, and they were denied any kind of help. They said, our son's mentally ill. He needs help. And the school said, uh, nope, here's a pamphlet on how to deal with your kid. Uh, we're not going to give you any help. And so it's kind of frightening for them, I think. And they were both working full time. His father, uh, postmaster, and, and uh, his uh, mother, secretary. And, and uh, they you know, didn't have a lot of time to try to figure it out. His, his father did try to help. One thing about Steve that's really interesting to me is that he didn't want to become a mass murderer. He reshaped himself in, the, in his last five years toward this tremendous drive for success to get straight A's and be a Dean's Award winner and wanted to, to escape his mental health history and who he'd been in junior high and high school. And even back in junior high, he was really afraid of getting into trouble. He didn't want to be in trouble. And he grew up in a neighborhood where three of his friends became drug dealers, so it was really tough to avoid getting into trouble. Uh, so his father was also trying to help him, uh, reported one of his friends as a drug dealer, for instance, to the police, and went back several times to the police and asked the police to keep this guy away from his son. And, and that was also ineffective. You know, there's very little they could do. What's strange is that the neighborhood looks like middle-class, uh, nice houses, just like a model for America, really. Elk Grove Village looks like what America is supposed to be. Nice houses with lawns, an award-winning high school, uh, kind of quiet suburbia near an urban center where there's lots available and lots going on. Uh, but the thing about class that we don't usually understand in America is that class is not only about money. And our middle class, in fact, in the U.S. is the working class. They just call themselves the middle class, but they're actually the working class. Um, but even, even that aside, uh, a big part of class is education. And his parents were not in tremendously educated jobs, professions, and neither were the parents of his friends. And the parents did not have a lot of tools for thinking about, for analyzing what it was that was happening. And none of them thought anything about the fact that their kids were goths, for instance, and what that really means. What does it mean to be a goth? 
You know, it's not a question that any of the parents in that neighborhood were asking. Now, this book is such an interesting portrait, not just of Steve, not just of you, but of America. And that's one of the things I really love about it, because though you focus on the characters, as a reader, we can't help but think, wow, this is so, such a, these so many kind of outside forces. And what you were just talking about here, on one hand, we have an America that doesn't care about its youth, doesn't really provide the anybody with a, a lot of tools or help. It's a, a system where all the social safety net has many holes through which somebody like Steve can fall through. Right, and I experienced this myself as a kid. When I was in fifth grade, we moved in Santa Rosa only a couple miles from one house to another, and the house cost almost the same amount of money. But it turns out we ended up in a neighborhood that was a lot better educated than the other neighborhood. And my friends went from uh, kids who were lighting up parsley flakes and binder paper and setting their eyebrows on fire to uh, kids who were studying music and in bands and doing their homework and where their parents were really involved in their lives. Uh, it was a complete change. And, and I realized even when I was that, that age in junior high that your life can be sent out of control by others, that when you're a kid, you don't have control over who you'll become or who you'll be, that, that outside forces shape you quite a bit. And my father asked me to come spend a year back in Alaska with him in Fairbanks when I was 13 years old. And I said no. And I felt guilty afterward because he killed himself soon afterward. And I felt if I had said yes, maybe he'd still be alive. And that's the background of some of my fiction. But the reason I said no is that I was afraid of those kids in Alaska. At 10 years old, they were already committing crimes and having sex and doing drugs. And I just knew that there's, there was no kind of goodness in me or inner power to resist all of that. There's no way. I just would have become them. Well, that's, I think, one of the interesting sides of this book, because on the other side, we have just the influence, the things that, that Steve and you were both bombarded with. So talk a little bit about goth culture. And, and you know, and, and I'm kind of, I have to admit, I'm a little bit surprised that you kind of bring in Marilyn Manson for a kind of a drubbing in this book. I always thought he was like, you know, second string David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I love Marilyn Manson's music musically. Like, I mean, he's a good musician. Mm -hmm. But his lyrics, which I had to study in quite a bit of detail uh, for this book, really do speak to the mentally ill. They talk about your skin feeling like glass, for instance. They talk about medications. Uh, he also confuses the concepts of suicide and murder pretty frequently in his mm -hmm. lyrics. You know, what if suicide kills? I, I kill you to love you, or you kill me to love me, or something. I, I mean, it's, it runs throughout his lyrics. And, and the band members are named after murderers. So, and they have Nazis at their concerts, and they know they have Nazis at their concerts. And... Um, they, some of their symbols are similar to Nazi symbols, and the color scheme is similar. So they actually are tapping into something that's incredibly ugly, something that's mentally ill, that's Nazi, that's uh, to the right politically. We think of Manson being to the left politically, but in fact, there are a bunch of libertarians and fascists and such going to his concerts. And, and he speaks to uh, that individual uh, above society. He does it in a strange way where it's an individual becoming grotesque mm -hmm. and seemingly to the left and, and not accepted by society. But what's interesting about Steve in, in this book is that he views himself as being progressive. He thinks he's to the left politically, but in fact he's as far right 
as you can be politically. He's a libertarian, and his friends are libertarians, which means that they've put the individual first, the individual or small group or clan over the rest of society. And his favorite book was Nietzsche's The Antichrist, which says that an individual should act above moral code, not be held back by that. All of our shooters have been libertarians because it's the perfect political philosophy to help you uh, you know, do commit outrageous, immoral, you know, antisocial acts. Uh, to to not believe that there's anything that holds us together as a society. So Marilyn Manson, I think, is actually very smart and probably knows what he's doing and exactly how disgusting he actually is. But he's managed to, you know, through being in the arts, to be able to claim that all of that is somehow good or okay. And before, I always thought he was fine, but I certainly don't after writing this book. I'm much more freaked out now about all kinds of things that before I just thought were fine. I thought libertarians were just people who just kind of wanted to be left alone, and you know, fine with that. But now I see that they actually want to tear apart everything that would hold us together as a society. They want to go back to the time when we don't have the rule of law. You know, be the Wild West with all of us with guns on our hips again. Uh, you know, or even worse, just with sticks bashing each other over the head. I mean, I, I have a very different view of everything now after writing this book. It, it, was, it was terrible, the experience of writing the book. It changed how I see just about everything. Our movies, our books, our music, our political culture, our military, the whole bit. I think it's really, it, that's a very interesting statement. It's very powerful, and I, I kind of feel the same way after, as you read this book, it gives us a very different picture of what the forces are at playing in society and how the um, interaction between the freedom of expression on one side and the absolute absence of support on the other creates a vortex that can suck even fairly strong uh, personalities into a place where bad things can happen to good people. It's yeah. more stuff cliches. Right. And, and I guess what was most scary to me about this book is um, realizing that we have 1.2 million veterans in our country who are seeking mental health help. They've been trained with weapons. They've been trained to kill without any emotional or psychological response, trained to kill without feeling anything, which is something that Steve felt that he received as training in the military, and he talked with his best friend several times about that, and it's certainly a big part of his shooting, and every uh, shooter that we have who's old enough to have served in the military has served in the military. They've, they've trained most of our mass murderers. So we have 1.2 million people who've had that training and who want mental health help, like, you know, self-confessed. They, they need mental health help. They want it, and they're not getting it. We have, uh, we've doubled the number of therapists to serve them to 20,000 now in a recent New York Times article. But the problem is they're in urban centers mostly. They're not in every small town where we have all our veterans. So I think in this country we, we need to be spending a lot more on services for our veterans in every small town where they live to give them help because they're the, the largest uh, group at risk in our society for committing violent crime. Uh, we also are giving guns to uh, ex-convicts, and they're a really large group. We have an incredible number of people in this country who have gone through the prison system. And I think that we like to think of the prison system as somewhere, somewhere that someone goes and they just stay there. The truth is the average stay is a year, one year to learn the worst behaviors possible and then go back out into society. And because of the NRA... Uh, fighting any kind of gun control whatsoever, ex-convicts can have guns. People with mental health history problems can have guns. 
Uh, veterans have guns. Everyone has guns in this country. Steve, before he got in the Army, he had a lot of problems. He started out early trying to commit suicide. He was diagnosed, and he was on all sorts of drugs. And one of the problems that they had in dealing with him that you talk about I think is really interesting was that he lied about his con mental health conditions, what he was taking, to right. his therapists. Yeah, and he also lied to get into the military. In the military, you have to fill out a survey to get in, and you have to say that you don't have a mental health history, basically, like that you haven't had even like trouble sleeping or you haven't taken you know prescription meds like antidepressants or anything or seen a therapist. And he, of course, just lied on all of those and said that he had no problems. It took them a long time to find out. Apparently, they don't really check that background until after you're out of basic as he was getting deployed somewhere. Um, they finally checked it. At that point, they knew he was a danger to himself and others. And so they locked him up in a psychiatric ward so that he wouldn't be a danger to the military. Uh, and then they just dumped him in his hometown Elk Grove Village without a warning to anyone which is what they do over and over. They, they're doing that every day. They're dumping people on us who are a danger to themselves and others, but they do it without any kind of notification and also without any responsibility, you know, not taking any financial or other responsibility to take care of that person who's, you know, broken in some way. Well, as Steve was growing up, all the, I mean, how many times did he try to commit suicide before he even went in the Army? Well, I, I kind of lost count. <laughs> yeah, he has and half a dozen uh, suicide attempts uh, with, uh, I, I have to go back, I, I think there are three or four that are before, um, you know, that happened in high school and during the mental health, his time in the mental health system. I know there's a couple that come afterward when he's an undergrad after the Army. The Army was great for Steve, actually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's what you said. It, yeah, <laughs> it's very strange, you know, that... For someone with severe mental health issues, especially com obsessive compulsive disorder where they have to check everything, you know, three or five times before they can leave or move on, like checking a door before they can leave or uh, whatever, it, the military is perfect because it plans out all of every day. You don't get to have any independent thought. You're told what to do every every waking moment. And so Steve found it tremendously reassuring. He loved it. He would have spent the rest of his life in the military and been happy as a clam. And I, I expect I suspect that a lot of people in the military are like that, that it's actually a good place for, for people who are, um, you know, have tendencies toward becoming a, a murderer and such, that the military is a perfect place because all of that behavior is praised there. It's really good to be obsessive compulsive. It's really good to not feel anything as you kill people. Um, all that's, you know, praised behavior. And the military turned his life around and, and made it possible for him to have his drive for success as an undergrad because in the military he was off medications and he uh, you know was became more functional so his life turned around in the military oddly and then uh, when he went into uh, undergrad at NIU he was still very strange when he first arrived they called him strange Steve and his roommate went around telling everyone that Steve was a total psycho like everyone knew it was obvious to everyone that he was a psycho and that could, he could be a killer but of course there's nothing you can do about that he just seems like a psycho he hasn't actually killed anybody yet now you talk about your own upbringing throughout this book too mm -hmm. and I think that that's one of the things that makes this book so powerful is that you're a character and I'd like you to just talk about the process of reporting on yourself. Yeah, that was very strange. That was another thing that was pretty grim for me about writing the book is to understand the darkest parts of myself that I had actually had a time when I imagined a school shooting. It, it, it was a strange kind of fantasy that was a blend of all the westerns I'd read. Uh, my father had all these westerns uh, by Louis L'Amour 
and uh, you know various movies and such. The the scenario I imagined is that I had my 30-30 rifle, which I shot my first two deer with when I was 11 years old, and I was very good with it. I, you know, I could hit just about anything with it. And I imagined I was behind the school backstop with that 30-30, and I was having to defend some girl for some reason. You know, it had a romantic component to it. And I was having to shoot all of my classmates as they were charging toward me at that, that backstop. And so it was, a, it was a strange school shooting fantasy where I imagined that I was somehow, you know, the victim that they were coming after. And where it had this twisted romantic component to it. And it gives me some insight into how screwed up those imaginings can be. You know, Steve became very excited about his shooting, and he planned it 11 days in advance. Obviously, for him, it was something different in his mind than how we see it uh, from the outside. And when he studied other shooters, he was very excited about their methodology. He and his best friend um, uh, talked a lot about the methodology at Columbine and VA Tech and talked about success also and a high pin count you know, killing as many people as possible. They're excited about the chain doors and the propane bombs that, you know, what would have happened if they had gone off. And I talked with his friend for hours, sitting with him and, and interviewing. And it was strange because in talking with his friend about Steve's shooting, it was just like how he and Steve used to talk about other shootings. His friend was completely unemotional, absolutely cold, no sign of any kind of effect at all that his friend was a mass murderer and had done this. And we were talking about Steve's methodology and Steve's <laughs> success. So, so it's, it's, it was very scary to get the closest I've ever been in my mind to being able to reasonably commit some kind of terrible crime and have it in my head seem somehow okay in some way. Uh, it was very scary to get close to that kind of mindset to try to imagine what Steve might have, have imagined his final shooting to be. Well, one of the things I think you, you say that's so scary is that it's not surprising that peop the people around these mass murderers don't recognize that they're crazy, that the mass murderer is crazy because they themselves right. are crazy. Yeah, <laughs> that's the whole problem with warning signs. Everyone around the mass murderer is a little bit crazy. They all are. So, so what do you do? <laughs> Um, so, I, I mean, his professors and friends were actually great influences for him at NIU, and if he could have just stayed there a little bit longer without having to go through a transition of his mother dying and having to move to a new school, that transition is kind of why he fell apart and regressed to who he'd been before. If he'd been able to just stay with that group of people at NIU, NIU I think he would have been fine, because they generally were not mentally ill, and they were studying a field which was related. They were studying criminology and corrections. So there's maybe something inherently just a little bit off or crazy about that field, about being interested in that field. But really, they're very sane, nice people who are very generous, going into social work, going into devoting their lives to helping others who are in need of help. And if he could have stayed with them a little longer, I think it would have been fine. But his girlfriends and best friends, the people he was more closely uh, uh, associated with the ones who knew some of who he was and his warning signs, they were all definitely crazy. Uh, you know, they all had uh, mental health issues. They were either on medication for them or undiagnosed, um, but they all have uh, significant problems. And so his girlfriend, um, who he was seeing, who was not the one, Jessica Beatty, who went on CNN, who was claiming to be the girlfriend. She was just the friend and roommate at that point. But the actual girlfriend, um, he had lots of emails with her about Kelly? mass murder and, yeah, mass murder and 
and uh, weird sex and racism. And she told the police afterward that she didn't see any warning sign. She didn't see a single thing that wasn't right about him. <laughs> and I just, I, I actually reprint it twice in the book. I, said, I, just, I just have to repeat this. <laughs> Because it's amazing. It shows, uh, you know, how much trouble there is in, in relying on that people will somehow notice that something's wrong with someone. Well, you know, one of the things you say, too, about in terms of gun culture, you, you start out with the paragraph with Charlton Heston's famous cold dead hands quote, which should yeah. give us a clue that there's something a bit awry with our view on guns. Right, and then conclude shortly thereafter with, with uh, Steve himself saying that he thinks it's outrageous that he sh- he himself says that it's outrageous that he should be able to get guns. Yeah, it's strange. He's analyzing himself as he goes along. And that fall in graduate school, he wrote a paper called titled "No Crazies with Guns," and he he quotes from my cold dead hands from Charlton Heston. But he asks the question: What if those cold dead hands also are holding a half-filled bottle of psychotics? An excellent question. He thought it was crazy that he could get these guns. That the Foyd card, the card that you had to have to buy a gun in Illinois, only checks the last five years, and he had been out of the system for five years. So he got the card once he'd been out. He started buying his guns. He started going to the shooting range instead of going to classes, um, and uh, and he started regressing to who he'd been in junior high and high school. He was actually not a lawbreaker, not someone who I think ever would have gone out and bought a gun illegally. I don't think he would have done it. He, if he loved AK-47s, for instance, he really wanted an AK-47, but mm-hmm. it's not legal to buy those, so he didn't buy one of those. He bought the ones that were legal. He bought, bought the most deadly weapon in all these shootings, which is the Glock 19. It's the same gun that killed most of the victims at VA Tech, which is our, our, our highest murder count uh, school shooting. And it also was used in Tucson. It's a gun that's meant to kill a lot of people in a short period of time, at short range, very reliably, without jamming. It, that's its only purpose. It, it's not, I, I don't understand why we want any citizen to have that capability. It goes way beyond militia or home defense, those two myths of the, of the gun rights lobby. Um, you know, even if they want those, why can't they have rifles and shotguns with three rounds each? You know, that stops mass murders. You could still have a militia and still defend your home, which doesn't actually happen. Actually, someone in your family commits suicide with the gun if the gun is used to kill someone, statistically. Um, but this Glock 19, it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy-to-get weapon. It's 500 bucks. It's still a carefully defended American right to go out and buy 10 of them if you want tomorrow. You have a waiting period for a week or 10 days, and then you can go use them. You know, it, it's not tough to think about what methodology is. You know, it, it's very easy to, to go shoot a bunch of people like they're fish in a barrel. And it hasn't changed since 1966, the year I was born, when we had the Texas Tower shooting. You know, it's, it's still the same. Well, the most likely people to kill you are not outside your house. They are inside your house. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually true statistically. <laughs> yeah. Suicide and accidental or intentional murder... Um, uh, between family members, statistically, that's how guns actually kill if they kill in the home. They don't kill uh, killing some intruder coming in. So we have a lot of myths in the U.S. We have myths that our military is good and our soldiers are good and they're a force for good in the world. We have a myth that our guns make us safer, uh, that, um, 
corporations will trickle down their goodness to us, that the Republican Party's there to serve the working man, that we're good environmental citizens. These are all outrageous lies. And I think until we face some of those lies and admit who we are, we have no hope of, of having any less, any fewer shootings. We're just going to get better consoling each other afterward. As a writer, as you were putting this together, I mean, this book must have infuriated you. It did. It infuriated me over and over. And I wrote it more quickly than I've ever written a book or ever will write a book again. I wrote 22,000 words, which is 80 pages, for Esquire in six days because they were holding the magazine issue for it. And then I wrote the rest of the book in six weeks. So I wrote the whole thing in seven weeks because I just wanted it out of my head. And I planned to reread it before doing all these interviews for the tour, and I didn't. I just didn't want to read it again. <laughs> you know, it was very dark. I, it was hard to go back and realize my own lack of any kind of innate goodness, that I actually could have become a criminal, that I could have hurt someone, um, that I could have committed murder. It was, you know, hard to think about that. It was hard to think about how after each one of these shootings, we have no change whatsoever. So we're just going to keep having them over and over and over. Um, and hard to think about everything in our culture that, that enables this kind of thing to happen. You know, our lack of good mental health care, our, our lack of, of uh, caring for our veterans, um, you know, our lack of honesty about guns, our lack of any possible reasonable gun control because the Supreme Court has really screwed us finally and forever with their uh, ruling a couple of years ago. Uh, now no cities or any kind of entity anywhere can have any kind of gun control. Uh, it really is going to be just the Wild West in the U.S. where with it, over time, over the next few years, you'll be able to carry a gun out on your hip anywhere, anywhere in the country, into bars, wherever you like, no matter what your history is, no matter who you are. Um, and it really is the Wild West in that way. And uh, that's, that's so grim to see. Culturally, too, it seems one of the things that you're, you talk quite a bit about is all the, the way the culture seems to be more flooded with pro-gun behavior and pro-gun entertainment. And so let's talk about first-person shooter games. Yeah, I, I, Steve thought that there was a connection between first-person shooter games that he was playing, like Call of Duty, and uh, his really committing an actual murder. He, he thought there was a connection. That He said that he wrote in an email to his friend that he thought there was a connection for someone who has some predilection, who has some mental health problems. Um, if they then train on these first-person shooters, he thinks maybe that that does translate into something, that does help you commit an actual shooting in real life. Um, there's, there's not actually conclusive evidence anywhere that I know of that that is the case. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel in Steve's story that this was one of the important narratives. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was nearly as important as watching the Saw movies, for instance. <laughs> I think the Saw movies are actually very important, a big part of his shooting, because in the Saw movies you're watching human beings being tortured and you're watching that for entertainment. So it separates you emotionally and psychologically from the victims, which mm -hmm. is the same thing that that military training does about killing without feeling anything. And we should be afraid of anything that does that, anything that separates you emotionally and psychologically from victims. Um, that's not good training. It just so obviously feeds into being able to do a real killing and to think of blood as splurting, even though it's real people um, in front of you. He thought it was hilarious in Sweeney Todd to see the blood splurting, and he didn't seem to have any emotional response in the actual shooting. The teacher who was shot the first one shot with one of the pistol bullets after he had shot the after Steve had used the shotgun. 
um, said that when Steve aimed at him, it was like he was painting a wall at home and realized he had missed a spot, and so he was just going back and covering that spot. And he just said it was completely emotionless. Now, you, you do talk a lot about the Saw movies, and this is actually a whole new genre of movie that's come out now. It's, I think, generally called torture porn. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can see these and, and with an R rating mm-hmm. in our culture seems kind of odd when you can't see consensual sexual acts with the same rating. Right. So uh, I'm curious as to, you present this as a problem. Do you think there is a solution that's workable within uh, the freedom of speech and to preserve freedom of artistic expression? Well, I, I don't mean, think there's anything in a saw, the Saw movies that's artistic expression. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is just bullshit. I mean, he's pretending to be a therapist. He's a sadistic killer pretending to be a therapist, pretending to teach them the value of their lives. I mean, it, it, it's important to realize that our, our fight for artistic expression is for artistic expression that actually does something interesting. I mean, to just, you know, to just produce crap was not, not actually what we were trying to uh, protect. I mean, the, the whole movie is a big lie. It's sexual, but the sexual aspect of it is never acknowledged, for instance. The whole movie is in denial. It's watching people's uh, being tortured as entertainment, but pretending that it's therapy, which is, you know, a really disgusting uh, kind of change. Um, this was this, the movies were very important to Steve. He had a big tattoo covering one arm of of the doll from the Saw movies, riding a tricycle through a pool of blood with cut marks in the background. And Steve had been a cutter in the in the past. Um, he had the the dolls uh, and posters and stuff in his room. He dressed up as the doll for Halloween, uh, you know, a few months before. It actually was deeply important for him and how he imagined his final moments on stage. The Saw movies helped enable him to go onto that stage and kill a bunch of people. There's a very direct connection. There's also a direct connection with Fight Club, the movie Fight Club. Another favorite <laughs> shibboleth of the... <laughs> <laughs> now, the Fight Club is one of those ones that you would think of usually as protected under... Uh, freedom of speech and artistic expression because a lot of people view Chuck Palahniuk as like, you know, a good writer and such. Um, uh, well, I've spoken with him several times. He's, yeah. he's a smart fellow and he knows yeah. what he wants to do. Yeah. And so, you know, you can, you can have uh, something disgusting and dangerous at any level. I mean, uh, you know, in, in good art and bad art. Um, so obviously you can't make any Limitations. You can't like say we have to ban movies or ban books, but but Fight Club is uh, another book of of tremendous denial. Another book, uh, and especially the in the movie form, which is a tremendous lie. It's it's someone who's gay who's in denial of being gay, doesn't want to be gay. So he has an alter ego who's a hyper heterosexual male played by Brad Pitt, and it has a project which seems like it's to the left, but actually is again libertarian and far to the right. Um, where they have this kind of army of maggots and they're racing and tracking of the individual. So what's what's dangerous about it is that a lot of my grad students are very excited about Chuck Palahniuk. Not a single one of them realizes that he is a far right winger, that he is a very scary, very far to the right, very close to fascist writer. <laughs> I mean, and that's what people don't seem to realize. And I think in America, we're we're blind mm-hmm. to political danger. Like, we don't understand that libertarians are actually dangerous. We don't understand that 
we've feared the left for so many years in this country. Mm -hmm. We don't understand that everyone we have to fear is from the right. It's the right that have screwed us financially. It's the right that are mass murderers. It's the right that would undo everything that holds us together as a society. It's not the left we have to fear. That's a big change that we have to make in our model for what it is in the U.S. that we fear. We're fearing the wrong side completely. Hitler is actually a brand in the U.S. West Coast choppers, for instance, use the Iron Cross, which is the second most popular Nazi symbol. Hitler became a brand in the U.S., which is the perfect way for Hitler to invade the U.S., to come in as a, you know, corporate symbol. Now, you, one of the things, uh, markers, that you talk about is Steve's fascination with serial killers. And there are plenty of books that he reads about them, and he's a big fan, essentially, of Bundy, Hitler, uh, and the Virginia Tech uh, shooters. Chu, is it? Yeah, Cho. Cho. Yeah, he's, uh, the, the, pro the shooters are actually really easy to profile. They're all men. They don't have a lot of money. They're really interested in other shooters and, and murderers and study them. They're all libertarian. They're, they've served in the military if they're old enough to have served. Most of them have a mental health history. You know, that's very easy to profile, actually. I mean, that's a pretty extreme set of, of circumstances there. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem is we can't do a single thing about any of those profile bits. It's not illegal to be interested in, in murderers and to be fascinated by them. And even if you do, as Steve did in, in college, he repeatedly talked with everyone about Hitler and mass murders in the hallways. He kept wanting to talk about Hitler. His friends got tired of it. Yeah, they actually got sick of hearing about Hitler and Dahmer, <laughs> you know, and how strange it would be to eat human flesh. I mean, how, what, what did this guy have to do to get noticed as a mass murderer? He's yep. constantly talking about them in the hallway, but the problem is there's nothing actually wrong with that. It's, it's not, you know, we have freedom of speech, and in a university we can study anything. And the problem is when all of this combines, that I think the lesson we have from Steve is that when all of this comes together into a kind of perfect storm, that's when we really have to watch out. So our, the reason why I keep mentioning our veterans is that they're experiencing that perfect storm. Veterans have almost all of these warning signs all combined together. So they've come back and they're trying to refit into culture, into mainstream culture as civilians. And that's a really tough process. Mm -hmm. And they don't have a lot of money as they're doing it. So they're all men. They don't have a lot of money. They're in a time of stress and, and transition, as Steve was in the last year as he regressed to who he'd been before. They've all been trained with guns. They've been trained to kill without feeling anything. 1.2 million of them have mental health problems and, and need help. Um, and everyone, almost generally uh, people in the military tend to be to the right politically. You know, it, it's, it's, it's hard to find a whole lot of people to the left in the military. So... If you think about it, they have all those signs together. So that's why I'm saying that's the group that we need to spend more money on and serve them better with mental health care and with education and other opportunities if we want to protect ourselves. You can't defend against an individual who just decides to go off and do a shooting. Islands, uh, universities can't be little islands of safety within a larger culture that's not safe. But culturally, generally, we could make moves to take the largest groups of people who are at risk and, and do something to help them out, to have their lives not fall apart. Because I think we can best view mass murders as suicides first, that their lives are falling apart, things are not working out for them, they want to kill themselves, and killing other people is a part of killing themselves. Well, one of the things that you point out that <clears throat> I took away from this book, too, is that the 
complete demolition of the social safety net, of any kind of notion of taking care of people who are unable to take care of themselves at all levels, all ages, from when he was just a little kid and it was clear that he had problems and his parents couldn't get help, all the way through to his final days, he was unable to get help. And we were in a, we live in a society that where that kind of help is frowned upon, that giving those kind of, the, the idea is if you can't make it yourself, you don't deserve to make it. Right. And also therapists are, are um, like generally do great work and, and help people out. And 80 or 90 percent of people who go in for treatment for depression have some kind of positive response from that. And I personally hope that, you know, more and more people would go into therapy, like anyone who feels like, you know, they're like when we go in for a, a, a yearly checkup with a doctor, why don't we also just go in for a mental health check? Like just talk with someone. How's your life going? Mm-hmm. You know, how are things working out? Like therapists can be tremendously helpful and all that. But they're uneven in who they are. Some, like the mental health system he was in in Chicago, which was a, a residential program, it was terrible. They pumped him full of a whole bunch of medications without taking any time to try to figure out what medications were having what effect. So he had psychotic visions, hearing voices. Who knows what were his symptoms and what belonged to the drugs. It was a terrible mental health system, completely broken, did not serve him, just made him worse. You know, pumped him up to 300 pounds from being skinny, uh, had him, you know, bedwetting. I mean, just so out of control and freaked out. It was not helping him at all. Um, And even right at the end when he saw therapists at the new grad school that he was at, University of Illinois, just south of NIU, um, the therapist asked him if he wanted to kill anyone. He said no, but the therapist didn't ask him if he had guns. And he should have asked him if he had guns. You know, what they ask is incomplete. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not, they're not actually identifying risk signs. It seems that people don't realize how easy it is to profile shooters. And they don't ask about the warning signs. They don't ask about their politics, for instance. And he had a lot of guns. He was not, I mean, he was not a guy who bought a a single handgun. He had a lot of guns. And it was shockingly easy for him to amass a collection of guns that were, you know, enough (laughs) to do what he did. And they all do that. They all buy a bunch at the end. Clear back from 1966 with the Texas Tower shooter, an arsenal of weapons and a footlocker that he carried bumping up the stairs up to the tower. Um, In... DeKalb, Illinois, where the shooting took place. Afterward, Illinois tried to pass a law which would have said that you can only buy one pistol per month. You can still buy 12 pistols a year. You just can't buy them all at once. But that was voted against by their own representative, and it was struck down. You know, that's why our, I think our country's insane and there's no hope for us whatsoever. I mean, what the hell? Why couldn't they pass that? That, that really is crazy. So, uh, of course, he bought a bunch. You know, he went in uh, with three pistols and a shotgun for his shooting. He didn't go in with just one gun. And, and I don't think any of them go in with one gun. You know? Why? I mean, when you can buy as many as you want. One of the, uh, as he was, his health, his mental health was deteriorating, he sought uh, sexual contacts through um, the proverbial Craigslist. And, and this plays a, a part in, in the end of this book as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the end, I think sexual despair was important throughout his life. You know, certainly being gay is not a problem, but being in denial of being gay and feeling despair about that um, is a problem. And he, it, he had had sexual experiences with men in high school and had finally told uh, a friend in grad school about it and finally told his sister also who was gay. And that was his chance, I think, for for acknowledging, you know, who he was, accepting himself and moving on, you know, to... a a good 
you know, better, healthier life. Um, uh, you know, his sister was having a good life being gay, and, and um, uh, but they fought terribly, and so that kind of contact, that chance of talking with her fell apart, um, and he just exhausted himself with a bunch of sex with uh, women, uh, prostitutes at the end, sometimes uh, three or four in a night. And sexual despair had been important from early on. He'd had a summer of secret sex. He had, had been accused of having sex with his dog, which he may actually have done. Um, it, it was, uh, the shooting was on Valentine's Day, and so maybe that was something that, that was there in the background. Fight Club, as I mentioned before, is really all about sex or sexuality. Um, so Craigslist is uh, certainly uh, the lowest you can go in our society today. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the place where all of the darkest things that happen in our society all happen. They all happen on Craigslist. I mean, it is the nastiest place that you can go online. In, pl in plain text. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and so that, that's, that's, of course, where he went. Um, and it, it was important at the end. I mean, I, I actually think it's a really important part of the story, that part of working himself up to that event, which he had planned 11 days in advance, was to exhaust himself sexually, that that's part of the self-annihilation, that he erased himself completely. He went back to where he had succeeded, where everyone liked him, where he'd gotten straight A's, and that's where he did this ugly act, so none of them could ever like him again, and he would erase everything he had accomplished, and um, leading up to it with all the sex, I think that was a form of erasure also. One of the things you talk about, too, is how both he and his real girlfriend at the time, who uh, uh, Kelly, were racist, but they didn't realize their own racism. I thought that was such an interesting observation. Yeah, I, I think that that's maybe true of most racists, is that they don't realize they're racist, or that if they have some inkling of it, they don't realize exactly how racist they are, how disgusting, or how debilitating it is. You know, James Baldwin pointed out 60 years ago that you can't be racist without hating yourself. You know, it's it's a, essentially a, a destructive uh, kind of view or, or position to have. And to see them in their emails chirping back and forth with all these racist comments with then little disclaimers, to see that in the disclaimers they believed that they were actually fine. They're just, oh, it's just humor. It's just a sense of humor. But this isn't actually who we are. We don't, we're not actually racist. Uh, it was really disgusting to see, to realize like how generally that's true in American culture, that we really haven't gotten past racism in the U.S., that we're still deeply racist and, and, and generally racist um, and, and not fully acknowledging um, all that and the effect that it has. It, it's important because it's part of paranoia. It's part of, mm -hmm. it links in these shooters to their fear of the federal government, for instance. They get really angry at affirmative action programs, not just Steve, but other shooters also. Um, so it becomes part of a package deal where they don't like the government, they don't like taxes, they don't like people of other races, um, and they're sort of empowering themselves as an individual with their guns. And, and the libertarian politics. It all does actually go together. Now, uh, you know, having spoken with you about this, I can see why you didn't need to read the book. It must have been hard to get it out of your mind. Yeah, no, it'll never, it'll never leave. I actually, from the gun rights lobby, I've been called the devil online. There's a blog uh, that ended, I reject you and cast you out, which are the words you say to the devil. <laughs> and I've been called un-American and unpatriotic and not a man. Um, 
and it's been nasty talking about it. Um, uh, the truth is, I don't like America very much after writing this book. I, I'm afraid of, of who we are. I think that we're out of control, and we're a nation built on giant lies. And we're, we're driving ourselves uh, just straight into the toilet with those lies in, in every way, culturally and economically, and that we're not a force for the good in the world. We're out of control and too powerful and um, wreaking havoc everywhere. So I, I, I really do have, I honestly do have uh, a really grim view of the U.S., and I wouldn't mind leaving. I've, I've actually been spending a couple weeks in the U.S. this year. Now, uh, this book uh, concludes with a description of what happened, and, and it's a very precise and well-wrought description, and I'm it seems like it must have been very difficult to write, not only in terms of this subject, but in terms of getting the chronology right, that you must have had to collaborate, you know, put together all these different pieces of the puzzle. So I'd like you to talk about, A, just the intellectual effort of putting together what must have been essentially a giant spreadsheet or timeline of all mm -hmm. these different things happening, um, just in terms of the uh, raw trying to figure it out, and then B, the emotional impact of doing that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I was crying when I was writing the book uh, in later parts of it because it was so disturbing to think about being one of his victims. And I couldn't help but think about that, of course, as I was writing this description of the TA getting shot numerous times at close range, including in the head of uh, someone hiding under the seats as he's going by and shoots and kills the two women next to her. Uh, you know, it, it's really terrifying, and and uh, and I, you know, I, it was awful writing that that final scene. It, it also, as you said, came from many different documents that I had to correlate because the police didn't give accurate reports of what had happened. Uh, no single report was accurate. One thing that was interesting is that not a single person who was there witnessing it saw it. It was so disturbing that they couldn't see it even at the time. It's not that they forgot it later. But even right at the time, as they're reporting what they've seen, they, came, they all had had their minds switch things up uh, because what was happening was too disturbing. So, for instance, the teacher who's standing right next to him on the stage thought that he had a silver pistol, like in the Westerns, even though it's a black pistol. Uh, he had a red graphic of an AK-47 on his shirt, and so several people thought he had red hair. Uh, a terrorist on his T-shirt was transposed in some minds to anarchy. Uh, you know, the, the woman who saw most clearly is the one who thought it was a joke at first and laughed. So she could, she could identify what he was wearing better than anyone else could because she wasn't panicked yet. So it was interesting for me to see that there actually is no true account for many of the witnesses who were there. None of them could see it even at the time, and none of them can report it accurately. And so what I have in the book... I know for a fact everything he was wearing and what he shot and how many shots and exactly who was hit and where they were. And I know the time sequence and I have the radio logs from the police, which don't match up with the re reports that police gave later, but I have their actual radio logs, so I know how much panic and confusion they were in also in their response. And so I was able to put it all together. Um, but, man, it was, it was, uh, it was terrifying. I, I really I didn't enjoy it. When you were done with this book, um, I, I think you're, you were a different person. Yeah, I really am, and not a better person. Um, 
I, I'm, you know, I want to be more positive about America because I'm American, you know, that's where I'm from. And I'd like to be more positive about, you know, myself too and, and other people. And I, I don't think we should live our lives ruled by fear. Um, but I do kind of not want to spend a lot of time in our country anymore. And, and I do fear now, uh, I see that a lot of people in our country have multiple warning signs that lead toward them becoming like this. And I think that the aspects of American culture that led toward his shooting becoming possible are really disgusting and things that we won't fix and that, that won't change. And so, um, you know, I don't, I'm not happy about the change, and I'll never write anything like it again. I say in the book, and I, I told Jessica Beatty, his, his former girlfriend, that, you know, I, I'm not ever going to investigate anything like this again. I don't think I'm even going to write nonfiction again. I'm, I'm just going to stick to fiction, which is also tragedy, but it's tragedy that's all meaningful and fit, all fits together. It's all cohesive, and it's redeemed in that way, I think. There's a kind of second chance. And in this, it, it's just um, knowing that we're not going to make any changes and that this book is just going to be ignored and that we'll just keep living our lives and and having these enormous lies behind those. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it would have been maybe nicer not to have the experience. Well, I have to say, though, that the first step to any kind of recovery is to have somebody identify that there's a problem. Yeah, and one and thing that one certainly way that, done that. One thing way that this book, Last Day on Earth, is different than other accounts of shootings, um, is that it's much more honest about what the problems are. Um, in we need to talk about Kevin, the recent movie. That movie is such a piece of crap because it has him shoot with a bow, so it en it enables us to completely avoid the question of guns, and it also has him born demonic from the first moment. So his life doesn't implicate us in any way. He doesn't implicate our culture in any way. He's just a demonic spirit who came in to, to do that shooting. And that's exactly what we should not think about about these shooters. And the book Columbine that came out also was a huge disappointment. It was supposed to have new information, which it didn't have. It was supposed to have a new view on who they were, which it was just wrong. You know, it was trying to say they were more normal than they actually were. One was a sociopath and the other was a follower. Like, they weren't completely normal. Sorry. <laughs> you know, and that book also made the big error that we make over and over with all these school shootings, which is that it focused on how great the principal was at the school and the teachers and how the community came together. We have to quit focusing on that and quit consoling each other and start to demand some change so the thing qu quits happening over and over. You know, it was a bunch of hand-wringing and hand-holding, that book. We don't need that. We need to see exactly how dark and ugly all this is and how it's us and how it's our legacy. It's what's going to just keep happening. We've done nothing to change it. I've been speaking with David Van. His new book is Last Day on Earth. Thank you for speaking with me, David. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.